The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, in this teaching series that we've been exploring this season, we've been discussing the idea of giving the greatest gift. And each teaching that we have had has been followed by a practical resource, an attempt to make, make actual the things that we have been talking about. And so Aaron kicked off this series by reminding us of the reality of the incarnation from Luke chapter 2. You see, God moved into a community. He attempted to reach people in order that they might be saved. He did not wait for man to come to him. He went to them. And through our time in the Word, we got to see the missional heart of God in the incarnation. God drew near to save people. And we followed that time by giving you a resource and setting up a time for us to pray over our cities and to pray that God would make us the kind of church that is on mission for God. That is, that is reaching the lost with the good news about Jesus. That we're imitating Jesus in our incarnation of the gospel to our friends and to our neighbors. Then Paul, in the second week, walked us through Luke 4 and uh, also Luke 10, where we discussed the idea of making the stranger a neighbor. Making the stranger a neighbor. And in response to that teaching, we were invited to actually think about the real people that God has placed us near. And we, we did this through a, a, a resource called the Neighbor Map, where you could map out your neighborhood and, and, and begin to think about the real people that live close to you and know their names, begin praying about ways that you can be a blessing to their lives, the pray, praying for their needs in their lives, and then also praying for gospel opportunities. And then there was a, a category on the left side of the page that that told you to think of like three people within your work sphere or, or friendships or, or different areas of your life that you could be praying for gospel opportunities to reach them. And then our, in our third week, Paul walked us through what it means to invite our neighbors to become friends. And Paul talked to us about the way that much of Luke's gospel surrounds the ministry to others by Jesus uh, around a table. And again, a resource was offered to guide us through an act of worship in our homes by consecrating our home and our, our dinner table specifically and saying, God, we want this space right here where, where friends gather, where family gathers, where our neighbors and coworkers and people we're connected to gather here in our home. And, and through our gift of hospitality, we want this table right here to be a sanctified space, a place where you are talked about, where the gospel is shared, and where real life change happens. Today, we're going to be exploring the idea of what it looks like to invite our friends into the family of God. We'll be in Luke 24 today. If you have your Bibles, you can begin turning there. Where we are going to attempt to define the gospel with the goal of 
of at the end of this feeling equipped and even excited to share the gospel with others. Now in our time today, I'm going to attempt to answer really three questions that are, are central to this topic. First of all, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Second of all, how do we share it? How do we share the gospel? And then thirdly, what response does the gospel require? What response does the gospel require? So beginning in chapter 24 of the gospel of Luke, we'll pick it up in verse 13. To orient us in the text here, this is after the resurrection. The tomb has been discovered as empty. And there's been reports that Jesus is alive. And there are two disciples who've now left Jerusalem and are walking on this road to Emmaus. Beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and, and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and, and they crucified him. But, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and, and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to where they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight, and they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven who were with them gathered together, 
saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now the word gospel in Greek is euangelion. It was not actually a religious term originally. In fact, it was a political term to begin with. Though the word gospel roughly translates to good news, it's what the gospel is intended to communicate about that good news that made it so powerful. There's this inscription that was found in Preen in modern-day Turkey referring to Caesar Augustus. It's called the Preen Calendar. It's something you can Google and look up. I actually have a a picture of it here, the the Preen Calendar. This was discovered in modern-day Turkey, and it says the birthday of Augustus has been, for the whole world, the beginning of the gospel, euangelion, concerning him. Now, this inscription was found on a government building dating from around 6 BC. And here's more what it says, which gives us a little bit of insight into how the ancient world thought about the word gospel or euangelion. It, It says this, The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar has brought life, our life, to the climax of perfection in giving to us the Emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order and having become God manifest... Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. This was the gospel of Caesar, the good news of his rule, of his reign. And they marked it on their calendar, these cities did, in Prain. There was a bunch of cities that that did this. They marked it on their calendar by by making his birthday, September, I think, 28th, or somewhere around there, the beginning of the year, the, the transition of the new year for them as a, a, a local people. So the gospel of Caesar Augustus was what we call today the Pax Romana, the age of peace in the Roman Empire which came about during this time into which Jesus was born. And the Caesar Augustus in this inscription is declared to be divine, a savior, the beginning of the good news for all people on earth. And to accept this reality was to accept a life under Caesar's rule. That's the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Now when we understand this term, euangelion, and its historical context, how it was used in the ancient Greco-Roman world, we can then begin to better understand the specific way in which the Christian Gospels of Jesus Christ were written. They were written in such a way as to present Jesus as the true divine king. He had come to bring true salvation to the whole world. And they were written as a direct 
challenge to the so-called gospel of Rome and its false peace, which was enforced through brutality and did not actually provide true salvation. It is in this historical context that the writers of the New Testament began to preach about the gospel, and and it set them on this crash course with Rome. Let's let's think about the the word gospel and its usage found in the scriptures. Here's Here's a couple of examples. The beginning of the gospel, euangelion, about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, starting out, very first verse, Mark 1, 1, in his gospel account. Then in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the euangelion of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel, the euangelion. Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel, euangelion, of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Paul even talks about this in Romans chapter 1 as he begins to unfold the meaning and the message of the gospel to the church at Rome. In chapter 1 verse 16 he says, For I am not ashamed of the euangelion, the gospel, for it is the power of of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In the end, this proclamation is exactly what puts Christianity on a crash course with Rome. It's what's going to bring Christianity into direct conflict with the rule of Rome. It's a replacement kingdom for the kingdoms of this world. And all of life falls under then that rubric. Here's why it's so important to understand this history. To share the gospel, we must understand the gospel. And here in our passage, the disciples are on the road to Emmaus. And they're still trying to wrap their minds around all the events of the last 72 hours. The Messiah that they've been following, the king that they thought would deliver Israel, had just been brutally put to death. Three days later, his body has now disappeared. And there's reports that Jesus is alive. They're unsure. What what, what do we think about this? What are the implications? What does this mean about life and, and reality now? And as they're walking, Jesus shows up. Now let's look at what... Jesus does to engage them. I want to highlight really four things, and and this will be part sermon from the text, part lecture, and so you guys are going to have to bear with me here just a little bit. There's a point. I'm going to get to it. It'll just take me a lot of words in about two hours. So, (laughs) what does Jesus do to engage them? If you're a note taker, you can write down vertically the letters S A L or S-A-L-T, S-A-L-T, salt, vertically in your notes. It stands for this, S is start a conversation, A is ask questions, L 
is listen and respond. And T is tell God's story. And we're going to look at how Jesus did that from the text here. Beginning in verse 17, Jesus draws near to them and he says to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. First thing that Jesus does is he starts a conversation. Notice that Jesus here is the initiator. Many times when sharing the gospel, we're encouraged to wait for an open door. Jesus does not do that. (laughs) Jesus sees these guys. He's targeted them for conversation. He steps into their world. He initiates an opportunity to dialogue. However, it's not pushy. He's curious. He's inviting. But he's also forward in wanting to talk. In wanting to talk about what is happening in their worlds and and what, what is happening in their minds. And so how does he do this? Also, verse 17, he asks questions. He says, what is, it, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? So they, they tell him. Jesus invites conversation. Before explaining everything to his disciples, Jesus engages them by asking questions. They look sad. They're obviously engrossed in a very deep conversation. And, and Jesus then welcomes the opportunity to join that conversation and to, to discuss what has happened with them and the meaning of it, what it might mean. Then in verses 18 to 24, he listens to their response as they talk about, hey, are, are you the only guy in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened? We, there was this guy, Jesus, we were following him. We, we thought he was the prophet. We thought maybe he was the Messiah, the one who would deliver Israel. And then they kill him and now his body's gone. We're not sure what to do with that. Jesus listens to their response. And he engages with what they are saying. He listens to their reasoning and responds to their reasoning. And then what does he do? He tells God's story. He tells God's stories. Once Jesus has listened to Cleopas and the other disciple, he begins to tell God's story in a way that they can understand. Now, it's interesting here. The gospel is not a story of personal salvation. It is the story of God's redemption of all things through Jesus. People do get personally saved. But salvation is only a a portion of what God offers through faith in Jesus. And so... He opens with a summary. Hey, verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory, into his glory? You see, these these two Jewish men already know the scriptures, and so Jesus engages with them on the basis of the knowledge that they already have. He reasons with them from the scriptures, and then he begins to shape their understanding of the kingdom of God and what it actually is. And what he's doing, though, is, is showing them that all of the events of the previous three days were actually foretold by the prophets and demonstrate that, that God's plan to build a kingdom with Jesus as king 
is still in play. It's still happening. The death of Jesus is not the end of kingdom hopes. It is the beginning of them. This plan is unfolding. It is the inauguration and implementation of these hopes. It is, it's not bad news about a, a kingdom with a, a, a temporary king who died. It is good news about a righteous and loving king who conquered the enemies of sin, of Satan, and even of death itself. It's, it's a king who will reign forevermore. He can't die. And it's a kingdom that even now is beginning to spread like a little pinch of, of yeast inside a lump of dough. It's beginning to permeate the whole world. Not only the world, but will permeate history itself. It is the story of history. God who is loving, created the world, sin broke it, God is now redeeming it, and one day he will finish what he started. That is the whole gospel. Well, these disciples are deeply affected. But Jesus is not selling something. So after announcing the good news, Jesus intends to keep walking. Instead, though, the disciples give him an invitation to stay and eat and talk some more. Jesus accepts the invitation. He goes in to dine with these disciples. And later, while they're sitting at the table, Jesus blesses the bread and breaks it and gives it to them. And in, and in that moment, they realize that it has been Jesus with them all along. It's an incredible moment. Now, I want you to take just a, a, a brief moment right now to think through what Jesus does not do with these disciples. He does start a conversation. He does ask questions. He does listen and respond to the things that they say. And he does tell God's story of redemption from the scriptures. But he does not lead them in a prayer of salvation. He does not unroll a scroll and point to every place that he has mentioned. Instead, he unpacks the gospel from the scriptures, but from scriptures that he knows by heart. He's not packing around 70-pound scrolls and then like unrolling them and taking the time to like, hey, look right here. Like he, he, the, the word of the gospel is in his heart, on his mind, and out his lips. He does not promise a good life to follow. He doesn't promise that they'll be rich or that they'll have their best life now. He helps them to understand how the story of God makes sense. And, and by proxy, by, by auto, automatic response, they will see how their lives fit into the context of God's story as a result. He simply proclaims the gospel or the good news the announcement that the king is victorious and the kingdom is here, Jesus is describing to them reality. He's not peddling goods or services. This is not salesmanship. The, 
There is a conversation about reality. Now, that reality that Jesus describes, though, if it's true, then for sure it requires a response. It specifically requires a response the way that the birth of Augustus required a response. If the king of all kings is in power, if he will never die, if his kingdom is one that will outlast all the kingdoms of the world, that includes friends and family, the kingdom that we are in right now here in the United States. If it is the kingdom that will outlast all kingdoms, if, if it is the one eternal reality, then the lives of these disciples and all who encounter the message must change. They must decide whether they want the forgiveness of their sins. They must decide whether or not that is something that they desire is for God who rules over this kingdom to forgive their sins. And they must decide what kind of life they will live in light of these truths. They have to trust the message about Jesus and then it will require them to surrender all of their life to him with the understanding that this does not earn anything. Rather, it is it sees that perspective of seeing this gift from God in Christ and his eternal kingdom. It sees that as a gift of grace and that this forgiveness offered by God through Jesus is nothing but a gift. It cannot be earned. Sees the rule and authority of King Jesus as glorious and as a delight to surrender to. It makes it impossible for them to live to themselves. It makes them delighted to live in such a way that, that all of the work that God is doing in redeeming the world is something that they are invited into to participate with God in. That's a joy. God who created everything has called them to be a part of his kingdom and the beginning of the redemption of the world. Now, depending upon which church tradition some of you may have in your background, I may be at this moment ruffling just a few feathers. And I want to help sort out some of the differences in approach to the issue of evangelism and why it is that we're, we're landing here and defining the gospel in this way. It's helpful to do a little bit of comparing and contrasting to understand where some of the differences in conviction lie. So there's, there's three broad categories of church culture that address the gospel in different ways. Now, admittedly, I'm just going to offer this disclaimer, I am about to broad bro brush a subject, okay? Within each of these traditions, there are lots of people who love Jesus and are living for the glory of God and, and all of those things. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to broad brush a little, but I want us to, to compare and contrast a little bit. Not everyone in these environments may believe in this way, but, but there are a great many caught up in these church traditions that do. P. 
people that are raised up in these cultures can have some misunderstandings about what the gospel is and what it means to share it with others. And most of the time, these differences are are really about defining who's in and who's out. Or to say it another way, the saved and the unsaved. Now, God still uses these church environments by his grace, But here's what we're concerning ourselves with this morning. Our goal is to preach the gospel in its fullness to those that we encounter because we agree with what the apostle says in Romans chapter 1, right? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So we just, we want to say what is true about the gospel. So let's compare these three different cultures. First of all, there's the members culture. Second of all, there's the decision culture. And thirdly, there is the discipleship culture. Members' culture tends to be liturgical traditions. Decision culture tends to be evangelical traditions. And then there's this discipleship culture, which can sometimes have people in both of the other two traditions. Okay? But I want to explain the difference. For for members' culture, the, the, the goal is to get people in the church. That's the liturgical traditions. These are, tend to be what is sometimes referred to as high church environments. The point of the gospel is to get you to become a part of the church, and that's sort of the end goal. Then there's, in the decision culture, it's just to get you over the line, to get you to the salvation point right here. And now both members' culture and decision culture have a, a salvation culture underpinning to them. But discipleship culture calls us not just to the point of of joining a church and not just to the point of salvation, but it calls us forward beyond the point of salvation to the life in Christ that follows our introduction to the gospel of God, the redemption of history. So let's take a look at this next chart here because I hope that it'll bring some clarity. So in membership culture, when we ask the question, what is the gospel? They would respond by saying, the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that you're to become a member of his church. That's the goal. When I ask, what is the gospel? To a decision culture, they say, well, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. Repent and believe. That, that gets you over the line. You were unsaved, now you're saved. That, that's the, and that's the point. When I ask that in a discipleship culture, the answer is, God created the world, sin corrupted it, God sent his son to begin redemption, and he'll finish the job. And this really becomes important as you see the following questions. Okay, what provides salvation? In in a membership culture, the common understanding in some of these liturgical traditions is that what provides salvation is active participation in sacrament and the membership that you have to the church. Now, in a decision culture, an evangelical environment, It is answered by saying, 
How do we get the salvation? What provides salvation? Faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone. Now, the same answer is given in discipleship culture. How is it, what provides salvation? How do we get saved? Well, faith alone, by, by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. But what is the purpose of salvation? Again, the membership culture says, become a church member, escape judgment, love others, and enter heaven. Just live a good life, escape hell, be a part of the church. In a decision culture, it's forgiveness from sin, escape judgment to the glory of God. It just sort of stops. But in a discipleship culture, when asked the question, what is the purpose of salvation? They say forgiveness of sin, surrender to Jesus, and participation in God's redemptive plan. And I might add on to that, to the glory of God. As we get to our final question, what do we do with salvation? What do we do now? In a membership culture, they say maintain membership through sacrament. Keep coming, attend mass, take communion, make sure you're baptized, take your confirmation classes, be a part of the church. That's all that's, that's, all that's necessary. In a decision culture, it's try not to sin a whole lot, manage your sin, contain it, right? And wait for the return of Jesus. But in a discipleship culture, we believe that we're being born into God's kingdom. And, and, and what is taking place is this radical transformation where all of a sudden we come under the rule of King Jesus and we begin to grow in the likeness of Jesus in every sphere of life while awaiting the final redemption that will take place at the second advent or the second coming of Jesus. So let's, let's recap just a little bit. Let's take a look, first of all, at the membership's culture. Here, families baptize at infancy to, to get people in the church. Confirmation takes place in adolescence through learning a catechism or memorizing certain theological beliefs. And this is the decisional moment right here. After you've been catechized, you, you, you agree to certain doctrines. That's the decisional moment. And then membership to the church is granted as the end goal. In decision culture, the gospel is about salvation, escape hell, make it to heaven. A personal decision must be made about accepting or rejecting salvation upon hearing the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. But the problem is, is the end goal is unclear. There's no clarity on what comes after salvation. Simply getting saved is the end goal. But in a discipleship culture, we see that the gospel is about how God is redeeming the world through his son. A personal decision must be made about trusting in forgiveness that is offered through the cross and surrendering to the lordship or kingship of Jesus upon hearing the message about how God is redeeming everything through him. But the third point here is that after that, there is tremendous clarity about the extent to which all of life is to be submitted to God. And this is where discipleship begins. This is, this is vital to the life of the church. If, if, if you think 
that the point of the gospel is just to get you saved, just to get you over that line, then nothing else is required afterwards. There, there really is no cost. There is only benefit, right? I get my get-out-of-hell-free card. That's, that's all that I need, right? I just hang on to that till the, the game turns sour, and then I throw that down, right, and I get out of hell. But in a discipleship culture, we're called into something. We're being born again into a new life, a new way of living. We're being challenged with a life lived under the authority and lordship, kingship of Jesus, of absorbing our identity as members of the kingdom of God. This is vital to the church. As a church, we are firmly planted in the third category, the discipleship culture. You will often hear that we are a gospel-centered church who believes in making disciples of Jesus who then go on to make disciples of Jesus. But what do we mean by gospel-centered? Listen, we believe that the gospel is God's redemptive work in Christ. And it's both a source of salvation, and it is also the motivation for all that we do and say in life. All of life centers around, hinges upon the gospel, God's work of redemption in Christ. And as ambassadors of God, Christ is now in us, continuing to do his gospeling work through us. The, the gospel encompasses both the way that we live under the rule of Jesus and the message that we give, the gospel itself. It includes the message about personal salvation, but it is not simply confined by the message of personal salvation. It's beyond that. It's much more than that. And this is because the gospel is about God. It's not about men. It has consequences for men. But it is not centered around men. It is centered around God and his work of redemption. So now, now that we see some of these distinctions, let's, let's get practical about what this looks like in life. Now, there's many examples of how the gospel is shared throughout the book of Acts. What we find, though, is that the gospel is an unchanging message about the story of God, but it is shared differently depending upon the context of the people to which it is being shared. So, for example, in Acts 2, Peter uses the scriptures to reason with people who are of a Jewish background who already believe the scriptures to be authoritative. And so he grabs the scriptures, rehearses it to these people who are standing there, trying to figure out what is going on, and preaches the gospel to them from the scriptures. But when we see Paul in the, in the book of Acts ministering the gospel on Mars Hill in Acts 17... Paul uses cultural references and poetry to preach the gospel. 
And he does this because some of the biblical language may be unfamiliar. And so he's grabbing things from their world and applying the gospel to their world to help them understand the meaning of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to his throne where he now rules and reigns. And so he preaches to them using cultural references and poetry. Sometimes preaching is open-air evangelism like Peter did in Acts 3. Other times it is conversational, like with Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, or like Peter did with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Regardless, a careful examination of these events will all drive us to the same conclusion. The gospel has the power to change lives and save souls. But it only does that If we share it, how will people know the gospel if we never open our mouths? They can't. Now, I believe that it is shared most powerfully in the context of personal interaction and out of an authentically lived life in Christ. Our life, the way that we live under the rule of Jesus, under the reign of Jesus, submitted to his will, exemplifies the implications of the gospel. That provides the backdrop so that when the gospel reaches our lips and we begin to talk about what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus, it has power because it is seen in the way that we live with one another. I heard this great story this last week of a gal who was training for a marathon. She she and a friend that she had met at the gym decided they were going to train for a marathon. And so uh, they they decided to go and run together. But the second time they went out together and were were running together, this other friend who was not a Christian and the one who was a Christian uh, began to have this conversation. And the friend who was not a Christian said, oh, uh, you are a Christian, aren't you? (laughs) She's like, yes, I am. And so her friend responded by saying, well, so am I, am I a person or am I a project? Well, the Christian responded by saying, of course, you're, you're a person. You're a person. She was very relieved to hear that. And so she responded saying, okay, well, uh, then let's just, let's run, let's train for this marathon, let's just not bring up the whole Jesus thing. Let's just not do that. Let's not go there. To which the Christian responded, so wait a minute, am I a person to you or a project? Because I want to actually share who you are with me and who I am with you. I can't separate my life from the implications of the gospel. It's impossible for me to do that. So, practically then, how do we get to the story of God, the gospel, how do we get to that with our friends? Now, here is the beauty of seeing your life through the lens of discipleship, because being a disciple is seeing all of your life as being submitted to God and becoming a participant in redemption. 
And if that's true, then every area of your life is this natural bridge to the gospel. Let's, let's see how that works. So here are our eight categories right here of discipleship that we've defined as a church. We have God-glorifying stewardship, authentic relationships marked by love, gospel purity and mature doctrine, missional lifestyle, authentic worship marked by relationship, godly character, pursuing emotional health, and willing submission to God. Those are the areas that encompass, represent sort of all of life and how it is lived to the glory of God. Now, in the course of relationship with others, conversations naturally occur around the things that will touch these areas of life. And what is awesome then is to, see, is to see how each of these types of conversations will naturally lead to the gospel simply by sharing your life and your heart with others. Again, this is not salesmanship. It's simply sharing authentically who you are and why it is that you are living for the glory of God. So now if the conversation turns to any topic, it naturally leads to questions about how you manage these areas and, and what your motivation is for the choices that you make. And you, you can do this easily by, by remembering the, the simple gospel motif. And I want you to just remember these four words about sharing the gospel. Ready? Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. These are the four essential elements of the gospel. Creation, God is holy, He is the holy and loving creator of everything. Fall. Man's relationship to God is broken by sin, and the whole world is experiencing the fallout. We are sinners by nature, born that way. Redemption. There is forgiveness of sin through Jesus' death on the cross and a new life promised through his resurrection from the dead. We need only to trust him, and surrender our lives to him as king. That's the work of redemption. And restoration. What God started in Jesus will be completed when Jesus returns in the second coming. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So let's see how this works when when we use that rubric to look at the life of discipleship in Christ. So if, if, for example, in conversation, uh, a conversation begins to develop around the issue of work or time management or finances or the management of my possessions, I can then remember that all of these areas are concerning God-glorifying stewardship, that one category of our discipleship. And the natural way for me to talk about these things as a disciple of Jesus is to talk about the ways that I have learned or am being challenged presently to use those things for the glory of God. And the question that comes next naturally in the conversation is, why do you care so deeply about doing that? The answer is the gospel. You can respond by simply saying, listen, because I'm a follower of Jesus... I believe that God made everything and that it all belongs to him. Just like everyone else, my natural tendency is to think of these things, my time, my job, my possessions, my money, as being 
only for the use of my own fulfillment. But since I came to know God's forgiveness and love displayed through Jesus on the cross, I've begun to see my life as a participant in God's generosity. I've begun to see that these gifts in my life are a way to show God's love for the people around me. And since I believe that I will now give an account to God for how I steward or manage these things in these areas of my life, I'm seeking to use these things for God's glory. Then I can ask the question, what do you believe the purpose of these things in life is? I have a natural time to just an everyday conversation that I have with people. I can do the same with authentic relationships marked by love. Because I'm a follower of Jesus, I believe that we were all created by God for relationships. The problem is that we're all broken by selfishness. However, since I came to know God's forgiveness and love through Jesus on the cross, it has changed the way that I relate to others. I'm, I'm learning through Jesus' example how to lay down my life and serve my friends and family. I'm, I'm growing in my ability to accept responsibility and seek forgiveness when I wrong others. I'm learning the value of being genuine in the way that I love people in my life. And since I know that one day Jesus will return and I'll give an account for the way that I've loved people, the health of the relationships in my life has massive importance. Why do relationships matter to you? You see how naturally that just flows right out of the areas where I'm learning to submit my life to Christ? I can do the same with gospel purity and mature doctrine and missional lifestyle. You can do the same thing through every category of your life as a disciple of Jesus. This is essentially, if you think about it, what the, the rest of the New Testament is doing. You, for example, if you take the book of Ephesians, you have got strong gospel proclamation at the very beginning. Then the implications of the gospel in the last three chapters are, this is what it means for marriage. This is what it means for parenting. This is what it means in your life together as a community. This is what it means for work. If the gospel is true, this is how it affects the way that we live with one another. There's no subject that does not ultimately lead to the gospel for a disciple of Jesus. And the gospel proclamation has a point. We are inviting others to receive forgiveness, believe in Jesus, and surrender to his authority in their lives. That's what we're doing. You know, as you came in today, you should have gotten another resource that gives you an easy-to-follow prompt for how to share the gospel. Uh, for those of you joining us online, uh, you can download a digital copy through the app or uh, off the website. And it uses the SALT acronym, acronym, start a conversation, ask questions, listen and respond, and then tell God's story and how we fit into it. So that's a wonderful prompt. And then it gives us the creation, fall, redemption, and restoration motif as a lens. And then a practical example on the back side of what it might look like to share a summary of the gospel, something that we borrowed from the Gospel Coalition website. It's a great resource. And what we're inviting you to do then with this resource 
what we're praying that we will do as a church is, is, is take a look at that neighborhood map, the people that we've been praying for, and begin inviting them to the table that has been consecrated unto the Lord. And begin having gospel conversations around that table. Sharing out of a life authentically surrendered to God with our words what is the message of redemption that though a loving God created the world, sin broke it, but God sent his son to provide forgiveness invites us now to surrender to his authority and live as members of his kingdom until the day that he returns to restore it. We invite you to share that message simply with the people around you, the people that that God has placed in your life. At the beginning, we asked three questions. What is the gospel? How How do we share it? And what response does the gospel require? What is the gospel? It is the story of God encapsulated in creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. How do we share it? Well, we can engage others by following the pattern of Jesus using salt. Start a conversation, ask questions, listen and engage, and tell God's story and how our story fits into it then what does the gospel require? This can look any one of a number of ways. It can look like an invitation to church. It can look like a prayer. It can look like a a number of things. An ongoing conversation. Let's talk about this some more. It could be uh, any one of a number of things. But the goal of the gospel is to move people to understand that in response to the message of what God is doing, they have a choice to make. And that choice is that they need to repent, believe in Jesus and what he's accomplished, and surrender their lives to his authority. And this is the explicit reason, church, that we were given the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Jesus says again and again, I'm, I'm giving you the Spirit so that you will be my witnesses. As a church... We know that disciples of Jesus, which we are, have been given a command to go, not to hunker, not to just wait for it all to be over, to go, to engage the world. You've been given a command to share with words the saving message of the gospel and to display it in actions through your life. So I leave you with the words of Jesus. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always even until the end of the age. Would you pray with me? Father, send us out now with power from your Spirit. May the gospel be, to a greater and greater degree, lived out in our lives as we submit all of life to you. 
that our lives might be a backdrop for what the gospel's implications are. But also, God, may the gospel be the message we proclaim, the words that we say to those that need to know you, those that need salvation, those, God, whom you might call unto yourself. So send us now, Lord, with power, with the gospel on our lips, to the people you've already placed in our lives. Impress upon us a sense of urgency, the same kind of urgency that Paul had in the book of Romans, where he, where he said with, with all the zeal and passion that he could muster, I, I wish that I myself could be accursed so that my countrymen might be saved. God, give us that same kind of passion for the lost. Help us to see the world the way that you see it. And give us a zeal to proclaim the message of the good news. In Jesus' name, amen.